Welcome to Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. This week, we continue our two-part series using Mike and his wife Kathy's backcountry hike in the Sierra Nevada mountains as material. If you didn't catch the last podcast, I encourage you to listen to it to get the full description and background of life on the trail. Today, we talk about the ethos of the hiker, that is, Leave No Trace, which has plenty to teach citizens, even non-hikers. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, along with wife, mother and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kathy. Hi, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hello, Mike. Good morning, everybody. And our special guest, Kathy Derrick, is here again. Kathy is herself a retired Army officer, combat vet, mother of four, and, oh, by the way, married to Mike and his hiking partner of choice. Hi, Kathy. Hey, Marna. Hi, Kelly. (laughs) Hey, hubby. Good to be back. Thanks for having me back again. Your best buddy, (laughs) as you call him. It's good to have all of you here, and thank you for joining us. So, Mike, tell us about this Leave No Trace philosophy that you've been talking about. Well, thanks, Marna. Leave No Trace is the ethos that has been around for about 30 years now that guides people in terms of how they enjoy and use and respect the backcountry. Not just the backcountry, but any natural setting. In the perfect world, it would be everything from the city park to the most remote wilderness area in the world. It was developed in the 80s and 90s kind of as a way to help people appreciate and protect the wilderness. Well before that, when I was a kid here in the Adirondacks, we used to say, or I was told or taught, take only pictures, leave only footprints. And You know, I think we were pretty good as, you know, campers, backpackers, canoeists. But, you know, we did things like at the end of a day, if we were on a body of water, and we usually were, you know, we would dive in the river, dive in the stream, and somebody had a bar of soap. Of course, it had to be ivory soap because ivory soap floats, in case you're wondering. I think I've seen that commercial. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's amazing. If you bring Irish Spring, you're a poser, you're a newbie. It had to be ivory soap. But you washed up, and then in that same stream or lake, you got your dishes at the end of the evening, and you dumped them all in the water, and you washed right in the water with soap or detergent. And, of course, we then pulled our drinking water from that same body of water. But, you know, if it was a river, we always went upstream. But the very, very different approach now, you would never do that in the backcountry because it just it really harms the, the water quality. So... Things have changed in the intervening 40 years, and Kathy and I believe it has been a remarkable success. COVID's driven a lot of people into the woods, into the backcountry. A good indicator of that is if you go to your local sporting goods store these days and you try to find a quality pair of skis or a canoe or a bicycle, sometimes even backpacks, they're very hard to find. Some of that's due to the supply chain challenges we're facing, but most of it's due to the fact that there's this incredible increase in the number of people who are backpacking and canoeing and hiking and doing all those kinds of things. So what it comes down to is that in some places, our wilderness is being loved to death by the very people who want to go out there and enjoy it. So that makes Leave No Trace even more important. On both of our long hikes, so Northfield Placid trail last summer and the John Muir trail this summer, Kathy and I were really struck by the way in which people respect and care for the natural areas that they're out enjoying. Um, We've backpacked now well over 400 miles in the last two summers. 
and only on a very few rare occasions have we come across trash or destruction in the wilderness. So it's really working. And that's what we'd like to talk about today. This podcast being Ethics and Etiquette, this is etiquette in regards to Mother Nature. And oh, by the way, etiquette in respecting your fellow hikers, bikers, paddlers. And then as a final bonus, you know, when you practice Leave No Trace, you feel pretty good yourself. You know, you've left somewhere at least equally beautiful as the moment you first saw it or you first walked through it. So I'm going to kick it over to Kath now, and she's going to take us through the first of these principles. Thanks, hon. The National Park Service has actually laid down seven Leave No Trace principles. In general, it's really important to be conscious of our the effects of our actions that they have on plants, animals, other people, and even entire ecosystems. It's a real thing. So let's start right out with these seven principles of leave no trace. Number one, plan ahead and prepare. So some of that sounds pretty self-explanatory, planning ahead for your hike, doing the due diligence on what you need to bring and a lot less stuff than you think you might need. So you just won't have extra things that you might be thinking about dumping in the wilderness, that would be bad. But one thing we do when we prep for a backpacking trip is we take all our food out of store-bought packaging and we repackage everything into like lightweight Ziploc bags, sandwich size or quart size, depends on what we're repacking. But some of those foil line packages are pretty heavy and they're also harder to dispense with. And if they get left in the wilderness, they don't ever biodegrade. And you can't burn them in a fire. Not that you really want to have a fire, but I'm just saying there are places and some campsites where you are allowed to have fires, but the foil packages are not good to burn. So the plan ahead and prepare, that's one thing we do. Take away for the listeners, repackage the food, make it in lighter weight containers, and then it's easier to pack out the trash. It's lighter. Number two. So number two is travel and camp on durable surfaces. And what this means is don't leave any more evidence of your having been there as you absolutely have to. So if you're on a trail, you should stay on the trail. You shouldn't make your own trail beside the trail. If you're in an area where there are puddles or wet areas and you have the option of walking on a hard surface like a rock or a log, you walk on the rock or the log. So You walk and you travel as gently and as lightly as you possibly can. And I have a great example of this. Here in the Adirondacks, we have 46 peaks that are over 4,000 feet. And some of the summits are very, very fragile. So they have very rare plants that only grow in those type of environments. And so folks around here have taken great care in recent decades to protect those summit plants And the difference from when I was a kid, when some of these summits were just, they were all worn off and bare, and the plants have come back. It's really a remarkable positive result that's happened from this second principle, which is travel and camp on durable surfaces. Hey, can I ask a question, Yeah, Mike and Kathy? I'm Mm -hmm. just wondering, I'm a member of the Sierra Club, and I don't do a lot of hiking, as you all know, but... I know from, you know, my magazine and and the various information I receive from them that they have service trips where folks go out and they work on trails, they do trail service, they do maintenance work. And it sounds like some of these flowers you were talking about probably 
some of that was going on, replanting, but how much is that necessary and what actually occurs to maintain the trails? I just wondered how that works and how you keep the trails in good shape. Yeah, that's a great question, Kelly. It depends. It can be everything from cutting back vegetation so that the trail is passable. In some areas, the vegetation grows very quickly, and if you don't clear the trail, the trail will just cease to exist. Another big one is what we call blowdown, where a tree falls over the trail and creates an obstacle. And when that happens, people then detour around it. So they're doing exactly what I just talked about. They're, they're creating their own trail, and that's not the idea. That's not a good idea. So cutting down or removing fallen trees, that's another big one. In some heavily trafficked trails, you'll find places where that are wet or damp where they will make little like boardwalks that keep people out of the mud, out of the dirt, out of the bog, and that's better for the soil too. So there's lots of things that need to be done. What doesn't have to happen nearly as much as it used to, due to Leave No Trace, is that trail crews don't have to go out and pick up much trash. There really isn't much trash on the trail these days because folks are paying attention. And did there used to be trash on the trail? Yeah, yeah. Really? And you go some other places, like Kathy and I have hiked overseas in Spain on major trails, and there's a lot more trash. Well, that's just rude. Yeah, it is. It really is. I had a question, too, on the travel and camp on durable surfaces. When you're doing this backwoods hiking, are there blazes to mark the trails, or how do you know if you're on the right trail? I'll let Kath take this one. If it's a popular trail and pretty noted, like they have maps and it's kind of someone's responsible for it, it's part of a wilderness or a state park or a national park, then generally, yes, there are blazes that mark the trail. For example, though, without blazes, there are four 46ers, the peaks in the Adirondack Park, which are a goal for many to hike. There are 46 peaks over 4,000 feet. They call them the 46ers. Some of them have what they call herd paths. So those are not marked trails. Now, because the 46ers are popular, it's a well-worn trail, but it's a straight up the fall line. It's maybe through a stream bed. It's just a eroded, muddy mess sometimes. And it's a herd path, but there's no blazes. And there are occasions where you have to be careful. You could get turned around. And definitely like in the winter, which is another thing, hiking in the winter, the trail becomes much, much harder to discern when you don't have the muddy, rocky mess to follow. And it's just snowy. Then there are no blazes and it can be very difficult. And people getting lost in the winter is thing here in the Adirondack Park. And just because of that, it's a little harder to follow the trail. And certainly if it gets windy and cloudy and gray and everything looks kind of a whiteout type of thing. But yes, to answer your question, I'd say majority of pretty popular trails are marked in some way and they're marked differently. National parks mark them one way, state parks mark them a different. A local regional area might do it even different. Some just use like it would be a blue blaze paint on the tree and they are super helpful. (laughs) And where you you were way out there in remote backwoods, Were there blazes? Were there trail markers? So last year when we did the Northville Plaza Trail through the Adirondack Park, yes, it was marked the entire way. And the John Muir Trail, they did not have blazes on it, but the trail, remember, is made for stock animals. It's pretty clear. It's a very distinguished trail. Thousand-pound beasts have to get through it, and it's been there for since, what, the 1930s. But they did not have blazes on the tree. There were a few marking the Pacific Crest Trail, 
which is from Canada to Mexico. And the John Muir Trail is part of the Pacific Crest Trail. So then you had Pacific Crest Trail markers on occasion on the trail. But I was kind of surprised given the popularity of it, but you'd have to be visually impaired not to be able to see the trail. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. On to the next one. So the next one I'm going to take is the fun one is dispose of waste properly because we all like to talk about poopy messes. So pack it in, pack it out. That's like the words to live by. And that is the gospel. Pack it in, pack it out. Everything that you bring in, there's nothing that you leave for the wilderness. And that sometimes still can be hard for people to work around. So for some examples, human waste, go into the bathroom. You dig a cat hole six to eight inches deep, and then you bury it and you try to cover it up and mark it and, you know, just bury it and leave it. I get leave no trace. So nobody really would see that hole anymore. You've covered it up and put the dirt back in. And that's a couple hundred feet, 200 feet away from a water source. So fresh water is the key to protect the fresh water sources. But if you use toilet paper or any hygiene products for anything, washing faces or toilet paper for your, your movement, you got to pack all that out. So bring that Ziploc baggie and as my friend does, cover it with duct tape, and uh, so you can't yeah. see in it. <laughs> Thank you for that visual. <laughs> and uh, and take that out with you. I know it's it's kind of unpleasant to think about, but it's even more unpleasant to find somebody who's left theirs and hasn't done the right thing. And the last thing I want to comment about when you can wash certainly, and we have this biodegradable. Uh, soap that's good for the wilderness, but we still don't use that in lakes and rivers and streams. You carry water from the, the water source 200 feet away, and then you wash your dishes, you wash your hands, you wash your face, wash your hair, if that's what you really want to do. And you rinse and do that oh, a couple hundred feet away from the water source. And fun fact, I have found that I learned on an outward bound experience to use gravel to wash dishes with or wash our pot out, our one pot. Gravel just works really well. You get little tiny stones, you roll them through and you, it just cleans that thing really well and you don't have to use soap. I was amazed when I learned how to do that and I have been doing it now for 20 years. Uh, how Gravel I with no soap? With no soap, just gravel, just cutting use it and, and all that friction and tumbling and rubbing the gravel through your kind of the messy food residue does a great job. And then I rinse it out with water you know, again, a little yeah. way away from the thing. I have soap if I need it, but it works pretty well without it. But isn't gravel dirty? <laughs> uh, yes, it is. But that's what's uh, neat. You kind of get the sand and gravel in there and it it's so rough and it cleans up all the food particles and then you rinse that all out and you put it back in the wilderness. <laughs> the dirt and the sand and the gravel and the food particles go with it. Again, a couple hundred feet from the water source. This is not okay. for the squeamish folks. So that's dispose of waste properly. I'm going to take the next two. The, the next one is leave what you find. Some of these places you go, you find very interesting things. They could be natural things, rocks, plants, and those sorts of things. Or they could be maybe a uh, historical site or an archaeological site. And the point is you leave it alone. You look at it, you take a picture, but you don't fill your backpack with cool rocks. I mean... Literally, we used to do that as kids. I mean, it it wasn't something that we were taught not to do. And you would find remarkable polished stones, for example, in rivers, and you'd bring one home. We don't do that anymore. So leave what you find in the wilderness. The next one is something everybody will understand, and that's minimize campfire impacts. For us this summer in California, walking the John Muir Trail, this was very, very important. And the reason was that there were fires raging to our north, 
not near us, but well to our north and to our south. So we were in this part of California, which although it was not burning itself, we were surrounded by forest fires. And some mornings we would wake up and the air would be a little hazy and we would smell the smoke. But if you were to have a fire in that environment, I mean, the forest was bone dry. I mean, that would be just absolutely irresponsible. And if it turned into a forest fire, that would in fact be criminal. I got to check with Kelly on that, but I think I'm right. Where it's ill-advised, you don't even start a fire in the first place. Now, is that signed? I mean, I I realize everybody probably knew just based on the Mm -hmm. conditions, but when you get to the trail, are there big signs up? letting you know that you are prohibited from, you know, having campfires? Mm -hmm. There were this year, and they weren't big signs, Kelly. They were usually put out like handwritten notes because these rangers who work the backcountry, they share information by literally taking a piece of loose leaf paper. Sounds very primitive, but it works. And they write a, a note on it with certain points, informational points, you know, what's going on with bears, whatever. And one of the things that they always had this summer was no one is going to light a fire because we just can't afford to run that risk. And the thing is, you go through campsites and there are very well-established campfire rings, or some of them are made out of metal, some are made out of stone, but it's clearly a place that people had fires before. But in a year like this one, it would be absolutely uh, insane to have a fire because of the risk that that would pose to everybody. And you guys uh, just used like your, you had like a little gas stove or? Right. We have a very small lightweight stove that actually connects to our little cooking pot and it's fueled by propane. So we have a tiny little propane canister. Although it is a fire, you would really have to try to cause a fire if you It's very safe, let me put it that way. And you always, of course, cook on a patch of sand that doesn't have any leaves or twigs or you cook on a flat rock. Now I have another question. For a first-time camper who's going for a multi-day hike in, you know, one of these parks, how do they find out specifically what the rules and regulations are for that park? There's a few resources that's really a good question. A few resources people could go to. Uh, some updated information would certainly start with like the National Park Service website or if it's a state park, you know, the state park will have a website probably associated with it. And they'll just usually update and have big banners of, you know, for information like that about either fire, floods, things like that. I mean, if there's a lot of trail washout or the the rivers are super high, then trail crossings or river crossings have become dangerous. Generally, that information is out there as well. There's also a really neat site, alltrails.com, which is not run by like a park service or a government agency. I'm not sure who actually is the proprietor of that one, but it's fed and updated by people who are out on the trails. And so the people that have hiked it recently. So for a lot of trails, it's really good to look them up and then see who's hiked it recently as opposed to three months ago. It makes a big difference with weather and water, frozen versus not frozen things, depending on what time of year you're going. So that's a, a really good resource. And I think there's a couple others similar to that one. Alltrails.com is very popular, but that can give you updated information on the trail you want. You plug in the trail, the zip code, it varies with websites. But Put those links on our Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Okay, what is next on our Leave No Trace? Oh, we are up on uh, number six, 
respect wildlife. So this one, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, just like leaving no trace of your own human activity, trash and things, but respecting what's out there. I guess the one that's probably been abused a little bit is feeding animals that are really either comfortable around humans or they don't know any better and they get pretty close. Or trash has been left by enough humans that they change their behaviors and they start hanging around. All of those are bad scenarios. The thing you hear about in the backpacking world in the backcountry is like the fastest way to kill a bear is to leave food out for it because they'll have to kill the bear. The Park Service can't have an aggressive bear at campsites. That's bad. So if it gets too used to human activity and human food, they'll have to take the bear out. They will relocate them on occasion as well, I've heard. But again, never feed animals. We were very fortunate on the John Muir Trail. You get so far in the wilderness, the only people that are out there are the people that are hiking. We saw a few different deer, and one day we saw deer with two fawns. They were walking down the trail ahead of us, which was pretty humorous because... They, too, wanted to be on their John Muir Trail experience. Went on for a while, like 10 minutes. And we're, like, walking a little slower than we would. The deer are walking, and then they stop and eat, and they walk. And we're watching them, and, and finally they stepped off the trail a little bit, and we walked by. But they didn't move far. They were, like, 10, 12 feet away, right off the edge of the trail, you know, eating some bushes and just looking at us and eating. And it was pretty cool because, you know, you just don't usually get that close to wildlife and they're beautiful animals. So, But respecting wildlife is all kinds. Rodents up to deer and even the ones we really fear like bears. You got to respect all of them and their space. And as we mentioned last week, you have a uh, bear-proof canister that you keep your food in, right? Right. And then at night and food and sunscreen and toothpaste and anything that has a odor would go in that canister at night and we'd set that canister, oh, 30 to 50 feet away from our campsite. And obviously if it's a big camp area that we had, you have to be careful with other campers if they're kind of nearby, you want to set it obviously not near their campsite. So it's kind of in sight, but far enough away that if a bear got interested in that canister, it wouldn't bother campers. I would think not in California, but definitely in the Adirondacks, you might run into hunters. Are you aware of the hunting seasons and just make sure that you don't cross over? Because I wouldn't think that would be a good idea. Yeah, we are generally pretty aware of the hunting season, but we have found there generally is no hunting anywhere near what are known marked trails. Now, if you're out in the wilderness doing your own thing, that's different. But if you are on a known marked trail in the Adirondacks, hunters will not be anywhere near you. That's good. But again, there are people that don't really play by the rules. So we often will just have brightly colored high-vis yellow or orange on our packs or a hat on or something that's bright orange if we're hiking in November or December. Yeah, yeah makes sense. And I'm sure your alltrails.com or other sites would inform you of if there's a lot of hunting activity or something stupid happens out there, it would probably yeah. be reported. Yes. That's why that's a good site because typically it hasn't been around for a long, long time, but hikers are really good about talking about unusual incidences or something that's weird. You, you wouldn't expect it. So they get that word out pretty quickly, which is nice. We try to check it before we go on a, a big trail. That's really helpful. I, I mean, makes total sense, but somebody that doesn't know about hiking wouldn't know that there are those resources. So that's really great. 
Yeah, that is good. I had a question, Kathy, on the Respect Wildlife. One of the points you mentioned is control pets at all times. What kind of pets are allowed on the John Muir Trail? That's a great question because it, it, that's another thing one would have to look up. It really varies on all different trails. So on the John Muir Trail, there were, where we started, there were no pets. But we crossed in 210 miles. We crossed over a few different what wildernesses. You know, we had the John Muir Wilderness. We had the Ansel Adams Wilderness. We had Yosemite National Park. So we're crossing over these different boundaries, which are almost invisible to us, the hiker. But there are little signs noting them. It's kind of like going from one county to the next in, as you drive in a road trip. But the rules are different in some of them. So we got to a campsite, and sure enough, there was a dog right near us. And we're like, what the heck? Dogs aren't allowed out here. <laughs> and... <laughs> We had crossed into a different wilderness, and dogs were allowed there. They were not allowed on the first part where we started, roughly the first, I don't know, 25 miles, and then we crossed into a different, you know, it's a responsibility of a different agency, essentially. And then they have different rules. So there are pretty specific rules about animals, and they usually have to do with a leash, and then the, obviously the pack-in, pack-out is, is paramount as well with your dog. So they can well, be allowed. Well, I would think that would give you pause if you have to pack out your poop and your dog's, well, not pack it out, but, you know, bury it and all that. <laughs> right. You'd have to dig a cat hole and bury your pet's waste. A dog hole. Yeah, a dog hole. <laughs> cat hole for the human, dog hole for the dog. <laughs> it's kind of confusing. I know. Okay. Kelly, did you have any more questions on that point? Well, I just generally wondered about the park rangers and i i know i asked about this on our last show i know the park rangers are really federal law enforcement and um, that they're going to enforce park regulations i know they can issue citations or tickets i know that they can even make arrests you know for felonies or misdemeanors even involving state or federal law but did you guys i know you said you ran into a couple of them in california but on any of your hikes have you seen anybody issued a citation or a park ranger having to speak to somebody about, you know, these critical leave no trace principles? You know, we've run across many different park rangers in the course of our travels, and I can't remember at any time being present when they were issuing a citation or something like that. What we often heard from them was, yeah, I'm leaving, I'm packing out to the trailhead, I've got 40 pounds of trash in my bag, and I just finished covering up three unauthorized or new campfire sites because when they find a uh, somebody who's built a fire in a place which isn't approved and established they actually dig it out and they cover it over so that no one is tempted to go there and make another fire again so we've not seen anybody getting disciplined or corrected but they do mention it and they always put it in their notes you know the notes i talked about earlier you find taped to a signpost. They say, please don't leave trash, please don't uh, feed the bears, and so on and so forth. I would just say that these people who are park rangers are a special breed, and they're, they're amazing. You know, they're out there for 
days, sometimes weeks at a time. They're super strong. I mean, they carry these enormous packs. Kathy and I were carrying, at the most, 35 pounds. Some of these folks are carrying 60, 70-pound packs. Wow. Yeah, because they have... You know, they have all the stuff they need. And then, like, as I said a moment ago, when they're leaving somewhere, they're carrying somebody else's crap with them. So they are worthy of respect. And I've had some absolutely remarkable conversations with park rangers out there. And they need that. They need to be fed a little because, you know, they need to know that people really appreciate the hard work they're doing. So big well, shout out to park all, rangers. Right. All you park rangers out there, we salute you. <laughs> Yeah. Now, Mike and Kathy, how old are they? I'm just curious. Are they generally kind of young guys, you know, out there sort of like outdoorsy types or it, I'm just wondering. Well, it varies, actually. And they are, I would say, to a person, outdoorsy types for sure. But there were a lot of women we saw at Yosemite. A couple of gals were working at the ranger station there that issued us our permit and gave us our little tutorial on leave no trace and to make sure we kind of knew what we were doing she was checking us out when she issued the permit to make sure we had our ducks in a row and it's good to know that she probably did that with everybody so if somebody was, was out there for the first time or pretty new at this they would be like huh and then they squirm away or they they say you really you're really not ready to go out yet you need to do xyz so a couple women there we saw i'd say age group kind of right out of college you know that early 20s into their 30s is very, very common. Many are married and many have some families. Yeah, I don't know how exactly their rotational schedules go and and when the ones that are out manning outposts, I'd say probably less likely to have a family, but there definitely are many that have rotations out in the wilderness for weeks at a time and wow. they are they are married. But I like to see we saw quite a few women. The you know, we don't see a lot of rangers, but the ones we've seen here in the Adirondacks and out in the High Sierras, there's a lot of women out there, which is cool. And I think it's just again, it's a calling to a lot of people who are outdoorsy and that's probably quite an understatement but they're people who really care about the wilderness and they and they just really thrive in that environment yeah, yeah that's awesome yeah might be might be a good second career guys <laughs> yeah well <laughs> okay. i guess at our age kelly we're the people who are going to be like in the campground behind <laughs> the uh the desk in the heated warm environment <laughs> you know? Campground brochures. Campground hand I'm going to be the handout brochures guy. Yeah. <laughs> Our 40 foot RV and a campground host. That's right. Good Sam. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. So, All right. Hey, I just I want to throw something in here because Kelly made me think of it. You know, you had an earlier question about trail maintenance. So in the backcountry, we saw rangers very infrequently. Um, what we saw a lot more of were work crews on the trails. And, you know, since we're talking about forest rangers and park rangers as a special breed, a special calling, these people doing the work on the John Muir Trail were equally amazing because they're out there, you know, in places where they don't go home for the weekend. They're there for weeks at a time. They set up a camp, a base camp somewhere, and they work out from there. And, you know, they're building, let's say, stone steps on a trail. They're putting in a a boardwalk, they're repairing a bridge, maybe they're building a bridge. And we met some amazing kids, young kids for the most part, part of the California Conservation Corps. You know, without them and their work, this this whole idea of a passable trail would, would just not be possible because it takes it definitely takes work to, to keep it open and keep it um, keep it up to date. So 
they uh, they were pretty dirty. They've been out there for like four weeks when we saw them, and they had two weeks to go. It was like a six week wow. summer internship or a summer keep them off the streets. I don't know exactly what. <laughs> yeah, I, wonder, yeah. I think I they were there for that, different Kathy. reasons. <laughs> was it like AmeriCorps? Um, I don't know what it exactly. Was. I do know some were there in lieu of going to juvenile detention. Yeah, okay? kind of like a work work yeah, release. Work program. release exactly, yeah. and yeah, others were there. Vo- that. And some were yeah. there voluntarily, and and I would say they probably weren't like a little bit of the wayward teenager group, but not uh, criminally charged with anything. We talked to a couple of the of the folks, and they they were just bright eyed and motivated and filthy, <laughs> but they yeah, were doing I mean, some sure. good work. Yeah, I'm sure they're good kids, and it's got to do wonders for their self-esteem to be out yeah, there and, yeah. and just being out in the fresh air. Can't quantify how that must impact their yeah. lives. Yeah, that's just great. And I know, like, to talk about the Sierra Club, they do have outings, and you can do an outing and just pay for it, or they have service outings, which are really very inexpensive and you kind of get to do both you choose where you want to go and you get to see that area some and enjoy it but you also work a good bit to do whatever that area needs and sometimes it's trail maintenance that's why I was asking about that but it can be all sorts of things have we covered all of the points we have oh no one no, more we've got, I think one we've more. got one more hold it one more the last one is Be considerate of other visitors. So we've talked about sort of not leaving a physical presence on the trail. And this is the one which addresses to kind of tread gently in terms of the the way in which you affect other people on the trail, which is a really neat thing. And and when you see it done well, you, you recognize it. On the other hand, when you see people who are just loud and obnoxious and making a ruckus in the middle of nowhere where it should be a quiet place, that can get a little old after a while. I would, do you actually see that? You do from time to time. Like Kathy and I were out walking up a peak in the Adirondacks probably about three weeks ago, and um, we came across a group, and it was a dad and four teenage boys, and they were starting a five-day backpacking trip. And I'll cut them some slack because these boys were so fired up. It was over the, uh, well, it was probably early October, and they were so excited. And boy, they made a ruckus. You could hear them from a mile away, you know, yelling at each other. It just was after a while, we kind of said, all right, we're going to move really fast here so we don't have to listen to them anymore. Anyhow, that's the seventh. Our experience has been that people are absolutely wonderful in the backcountry. Not only are they considerate of others, but as we talked about in our previous podcast, they go that extra distance to help others, whether it's with medical issues or food or directions or, you know, even clothing. I've seen a lot of clothing being passed around when somebody needs an extra layer or something. So that's really heartwarming. Yeah. And those are the seven. Those are leave no trace. So Shall we just do a recap of them right now? Yeah. Kath, you want to do that? Let's start with the seven. Number one was plan ahead and prepare. Number two, travel and camp on durable surfaces. Number three, dispose of waste properly. Number four, leave what you find. Number five, minimize campfire impacts. Number six, respect wildlife. And number seven, be considerate of other visitors. Leave No Trace is a huge success story. You know, it doesn't mean it's perfect. We've some pe- seen people out there who, who just don't get it. 
and in some cases we've done our part to make up for their lack of consideration for others and the wild places. But in general, the woods have become a whole lot cleaner than they used to be, as Mike alluded to earlier. I'm thinking back to the JMT this summer. I saw only a few instances where people left trash, and most of it was inadvertently. There's always going to be that energy bar wrapper that falls out of your pocket while you're walking. And oh, by the way, the next person by will usually pick it up. So even the best of us can misplace something in the dark. And and that was interesting sometimes coming into campsites when we found things that had some value to them. So it really wasn't trash, but people probably left it who got out early with a headlamp on and they just missed And you don't want to leave that stuff either. But again, usually pick it up and the next person will take it out or keep it. (laughs) So, And you also mentioned there are points where you can share stuff that you don't need at certain points along the trail, right? Right. The outposts that we had mentioned last week on talking about the John Muir Trail and uh, that experience, there were two resupply outposts where people would mail a package to a food to resupply themselves. But they also typically... Had not only a post office, but they were they were like mini general stores where you ha- you could buy a few key items, and you also they had buckets between for old batteries, they had buckets for trash, and they had and then they had the take it or leave it, and you could leave stuff or you could take stuff. It was just for anyone who needed it or or wanted to unload something that they're not using and just weighed too much and they wanted to get rid of it. So that could be very very helpful on the trail because things break and things get lost, and um, it's nice sometimes to get a. Find a little gem. And I found some really cool snacks in those buckets. (laughs) Some Fritos? Yeah, Yeah, I'm not saying, Marna. I'm not saying. Because if I I give away all my secrets, I'm going to catch a lot of grief. There's things in those buckets that I generally would not want to be seen in my shopping cart. (laughs) Right. It just depends how hungry you are, right? So it sounds like... That what you said before, Mike, about leave only footprints, take only memories, or take only pictures, it sounds like they sat down and codified that and expanded on it and came up with these seven points. So it would be clear to everyone. Yeah. You know, this leave no trace is a thing now. There's a center for leave no trace. It's the leave no trace center for outdoor ethics. It's in Boulder, Colorado. And they, they do a lot of writing. They do a lot of presentation. Like in our local mountain club here in the Adirondacks, we have classes on it. One of the things that has helped, we talked about uh, plants on the summit. It's the very fragile alpine plants. When you climb a summit in the Adirondacks on a busy summer day, you're going to find somebody up there from our mountain club who's volunteered to be on top of that mountain for six or eight hours and talk to people about this and say, hey, you know, they call it do the rock walk. So don't walk through the the fragile little flowers. Stay on the rocks, you know, hop from rock to rock. It's kind of a challenge physically. They're um, called summit stewards. Yeah. And and they are also pretty informative. Like they tell you about the plants and certain flowers. And I think once you kind of like get clued in that, oh, look at these nice flowers and this is what they're called. And they're very fragile and just awareness. And it helps people to not trample on them. Yeah. So it works. Really works. It's so interesting. It's like the etiquette we talk about in sort of our everyday busy lives, but a different version for being out there in nature and in a situation that's, I think, much more remote, where you really could do whatever you wanted and nobody would know, but people are doing the right thing, which I think is so inspiring. Yeah. For those of us who've been doing this for decades, it is remarkable. It's just amazing. And 
you know, we've talked about it like in the previous podcast, how we, we filter our water virtually all the time. But what's interesting to note is that water quality in these Adirondack lakes has gotten better and better and better over the last couple decades because people are doing the right thing. And that can be someone who's walking by that body of water, who's paddling on it, or even the person who has a home that's on the water where they place their septic system and they, you know, septic system no longer harms the lake. So it's just, it's a community effort. And again, it's working. And for those of us who really enjoy getting out there, it makes it much more pleasant. Michael, on your comment about community effort, why don't you talk about how we take that next step and move and leave no trace to the next level? Yeah, so there is this thing called Beyond Leave No Trace, and that's all in quotes, Beyond Leave No Trace. Two guys came up with it, at least they get credit. Their names are Gregory Simon and Peter Alagona, and they, recognizing that Leave No Trace has worked so well for the wilderness, they're asking that people take that same approach and that same ethos to everywhere we go, be it wilderness, be it your city street, be it your place of work, and that we treat everything with greater respect and we conserve resources and we try to tread a little more gently and not leave a mark. And if we could manage to do that, the world and the places we live in would become much more pleasant, much more livable, much healthier. And they also have seven principles. I don't know. Do we want to run yeah. through those, Mona? Yeah, let's, let's run through okay. these because these are applicable to yeah. non-hikers among us. Yeah. So what they're saying is their number one is educate yourself and others about the places you visit. So in other words, go in informed. Just don't go out there and blunder around and not know what you're doing. Number two is about consumption, and that is purchase only the equipment and the clothing that you need. So you know, that you see people, I hate to dump on car campers, but they're a wonderful target. And I say that <laughs> as a backpacker. So yeah, I'm a little biased. Yeah. But you know, you see a van or an RV or a trailer open up and stuff just starts spilling out. Mm. Sewing like, machines. Yeah. How can you use all that stuff? And how are you going to get it back in there, you know, when you're when you go to leave? So only purchase the things you need. Okay, so number three in Beyond Leave No Trace is take care of the equipment and the clothing that you have. In other words, make what you currently own last longer. Number four is make conscientious food, equipment, and clothing consumption choices. Where is it made? How is it made? What's it made out of? Think those things through before you buy it. And if I can interject, this clearly you can take way, way beyond the wilderness and car camping and everything. Oh, absolutely. Look, Just look at the number of garages that never, ever will house a car. There's so much stuff in the garage. It's just so much equipment and clothing and pools and you name it, stuff in boxes and the storage facilities people have to get for their stuff because it doesn't fit in their house anymore. They don't want it in their house. And we have storage facilities. And that I think this really speaks to that. Make conscientious choices about food, equipment, and clothing, and consumption. And what do you need to live on? And how many of them do you need? Yeah, you can see we live under a pretty draconian system here in the Derrick household. But um, <laughs> just saying, just saying. 
All right, number five, minimize waste production. Okay, I think everybody gets this. You know, just create less waste. If I could take a second, I just listened to the recycling podcast on ethics and etiquette, which was done many months ago. I somehow missed that one. And uh, when I looked at these Beyond Leave No Trace, I thought of that because your recycling podcast really dovetails with the same ideas on being personally responsible for our environment. So listeners, if you haven't listened to that one, it's really worth a tune in for 35 minutes on uh, recycling in the USA. So shout out to Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yes. Kathy, what's your um, your saying favorite saying? Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. It's very main. (laughs) It's a mainer. mainer Yeah, that sounds main. Yeah. But it's good advice. Yeah. Again, you can see the system we live here, live under here. As a New Yorker, it's been a big adjustment. All right. Number six is reduce energy consumption. Okay. I think everybody knows why. And the last one, number seven, is get involved by conserving and restoring the places you visit. So, Kelly, this is to your trail maintenance, volunteerism, and those sorts of things, which you approach all of this differently when you go out on a trail crew for a day and you cut back branches or you pick up trash or you you help build a bridge, you put in rocks to hop through a muddy section. You just have a very different view of not just that trail, but the backcountry in general. I really like these beyond leave no trace principles because I think that if we all kind of took those on board and lived them a little better, just a little bit, if everybody could help in that regard, boy, it would make a huge difference wherever wherever we live, wherever yeah. we go. It'd make so. a huge difference little by little. That's how huge differences are made. That's what I, I wonder love if about those these. guys are like in a high rise on Park Avenue coming up with these and giggling at the rest of us. <laughs> no, I think they're park rangers. Uh, <laughs> I think they're park rangers, Kelly. Okay, you know so how they... you find that out? Like you know, people come up with these great ideas or they, you know, like some of the wealthy all about everybody needs to have less children. Like I remember Sting saying that, you know, the population's too... You know, meanwhile, he's got five kids, or Al Gore in his private jet telling us yeah, they're destroying right. the planet. Making uh, millions telling us to live simply. Yeah, yeah I just, yeah, um, right. yeah. just, you know, just be quiet. I mean, I'm not going to criticize you for the way you live, but please. But as <laughs> Don't that, be a hypocrite. Is that a book, Mike, Beyond Leave No Trace, or is that... You know, I don't know. A website Mara. or something? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, i got to do a little more research. Okay. I came across it on the... Uh, the source of all knowledge, the internet. It just really seemed to fit here. Yeah. Back to Al Gore. I mean, he did, you know, invent the internet. I just want to mention that. Oh, thank you, Kelly. You're yeah. welcome. Since okay. we were talking oh, I've about... I've forgotten that. Yes. He did. Since yes. we were talking about the environment and, mm-hmm. and Al, I just thought I'd remind everybody of that as well. Yeah. So what I like about these beyond leave no trace is how applicable they are to all of us and, and not just those who go out and backpacking on, in the backwoods which i honestly don't think i'll ever do short oh, hikes Marna, don't short hikes. It out. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i can take this to heart yeah. and i do as i think that's what we're trying to do with this podcast mm-hmm. just to be more conscientious about mm-hmm. how you live in the world and yeah. with other people yeah, I think it's really interesting because it just makes you think. I mean, so many of the things you guys outlined that you do, I would have never thought about. I just wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even wouldn't even cross my mind. So super yeah. interesting. Just thinking on the Beyond Leave No Trace, I really 
they really resonated with me because I was like, wow. Yeah, just things of trying to, do I have clutter in my house and do I have too many of certain things? Absolutely. And it's been this goal to try to like downsize. What do I need to live and live comfortably and quality of life? It's a challenge and it's a goal. It's a, And it's hard to attain, certainly not attaining perfection, but just kind of working in that direction where you are aware. And the beyond leave no trace, I think for me was a more awareness. I think it's very easy for us to be aware with our backpacking experience, what to do out in the wilderness. But, you know, what are we doing in our own home and in our own communities? I think it's really accessible to most people. Yeah, that's what I like about it, too. Kelly and I have a few questions. Can you take some questions? Sure. Sure. Okay. Do you have a horror story to share about what you've seen on the trail? Oh, God, I do. So on the JMT... At the very end, they have to, at the beginning, they issue you a wag bag. And the ranger issues this when you get your permit. I didn't even know what a wag bag was. She's like, do you have your wag bag? No. Well, it's okay because they issued us each one. And when you get to just at the end, you're in the Mount Whitney wilderness area. So this is the day before you walk out. The last camping area is Guitar Lake, quite famous on the JMT. And that's the last big camping area by a beautiful lake before you will summit Mount Whitney and and walk out. In Guitar Lake, there is, there's no digging cat holes at that campsite. So you have a wag bag and you must have that and do your business in a bag and then you carry that out with you. And you don't, you're not allowed to dig holes and do anything like that, bury any trash or any human waste. We got to the campsite and, uh, and just, just for a side, I, I was a little horrified at the whole idea of this, <laughs> but it actually was a pretty good system. Whoever makes those bags and they, they figured it out and it, it wasn't so as bad as I thought it was going to be. But we got to the campsite. We found our campsite at Guitar Lake. And what do you think previous camper left there at the site? They left their wag bag. They used it and set it there, kind of tucked a rock up beside it and left it. And like, huh? I can't believe Who it. Who does that? <laughs> Isn't it bad enough that we have to use a bag? But then again, they are made and they're double wrapped and they're perfectly, they, you stay, they seal up for sure. But now, are they paper? Or what are they're they? plastic. They're like two, they? a two two bag system. The inner one clear. No, no, they're colored. They're colored, and they have a little sanitation packet in there that you break open, so it kind of helps with the odor. And they actually give you a towelette and everything. And it's like a little package. So you clean off your hands, and you put everything into the wag bag. Your towelette, and you have you've broken open the sanitation powder that. Oh my gosh, deodorant. it sounds lovely. It's very well thought out, actually, and they work. <laughs> lovely. The only lovely. thing that is not lovely is the idea that you have to actually carry it out with you. But right. but what's worse is carrying out somebody else's. And I tell you what, you know, uh, there might yeah, have yeah, been yeah. a few choice words said by me. <laughs> well, well, will Kathy, not be repeated here. But was I, it for uh, sure on purpose? Like, I don't. No, we don't be know naive. because they there was something else at the campsite of value. They probably left early with a headlamp, so they might have missed it. What really their fault was, it was tucking it off to the side and putting kind of a rock beside it. Like, oh, we don't really want to see this while we're in the campsite. So instead of tucking it into like a greater a trash bag or somewhere where it's going to be with their trash, where they wouldn't forget it, it was not. And that was their mistake. So my guess is in the morning with their headlamp on, they forgot it. I don't know if it was intentional. I'm just saying it was sloppy and somebody else us carried out their trash. So I think a lot of these are inadvertent, especially there because many people head out that day with headlamps on it in the dark of morning because they want to get up to Mount Whitney and give themselves enough time. But that was our yuck moment. Yeah. Yucky. My question, in addition to (laughs) the other interruptions, 
and questions I asked are, you guys have hiked so much, so many different places. What would you say thus far is your favorite trail and your least favorite, you know, maybe dirtiest or least favorite for whatever reason? Wow, such a wealth of choices, Kelly. I would say my favorite trail just because of its length and its challenge and then the way in which it took you to super low points and super high points has got to be the John Muir Trail. Those super low points and high points being both physically and psychically. It was a real adventure for both of us. We just feel so good coming off of that. It's really changed our view of ourselves and each other as we talked about in the last podcast. That's got to be top of the list for me. I would say for me the trails that I don't enjoy are the ones here in the Adirondacks where they are not marked trails. So Kathy talked about them. They're herd paths. So we have some peaks which are unmarked so to speak but everybody follows the same route. So it, in some cases you're in like a muddy trench and it's just it's not maintained it's not marked and it just can be really really rough going. So those aren't a lot of fun. I have, um, well, you know, I, I think the John Muir Trail's got to be kind of for the challenge at the top of the list, but I do have a favorite, and it's not a multi, it can be a multi-day, but it really, it's it's in Hawaii, and it's on the island of Kauai, and it's the Kalalau Trail, and the Kalalau Trail, if you look at, like, something that, that lists that will, you know, the top hikes in the in the world, often the Kalalau Trail is on there, because it is that stunning. It's also hard. And uh, the average person won't go out there that 11 miles to get to this incredibly secluded beach with a waterfall. And you have to hike in to get there. Or in the summer months when the waves aren't too big, you could kayak down in there. But there's no motorized traffic getting there. It's that isolated. And you're just in and out on these cliffs hiking out this this 11-mile hike. And it's something to behold. We got our backpacks. We went like college students when somebody watched the kids when we were in Hawaii. And we just flew with our backpacks and we went right to the trailhead and we just hiked out and went out and stayed one night. And we loved it so much. The next year when my mother came out, we did it again for two nights and just stayed out there and goofed off for a whole day. But yeah, it still is one of my absolute favorite hikes. And it's super challenging, but it's not like a multi-day, 100-mile backpack thing. It's it's a long, hard 11 miles in to the beach and to the camping area but in, and it's not many people there that's my favorite so kathy see if you can find a picture from that hike and we'll post it on our instagram yeah. i'd like to see a picture yeah yeah that out. sounds that it sounds special it sounds it's, pretty cool it's spectacular it's yeah. amazing i don't have i think anytime i get out in the wilderness they're not maybe not my favorites but it's t- still always a decent experience it's like oh you just got away from it all you unplugged and it makes me feel good so even though some of them are not ones I would go back to I have a hard time saying they were horrible because I think it's still just a fun experience to get out there some of the dirtiest ones were on the Camino de Santiago when we walked across Spain on that pilgrimage and it just there was a lot of trash on the trail and we were surprised, but that's a hundred thousand people walk that every year. So that, I think that might be another podcast. <laughs> that took yeah. you months, didn't it? Thirty-three days. Thirty-three days. Five hundred miles with it's a teenager. With a teenager. Two of them. It's, uh, two, teenagers? two teenagers. Our niece and our son. They, oh, were, okay. they were fourteen and seventeen, and that one's more civilized. That's a small backpack, small pack, just with your personal items, and then you can eat along the trail and drink a lot, like the Spanish do. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a lot of fun. In restaurants. In we restaurants. didn't lose. Yeah. There was no Mike's Fat Camp on the Camino. Right. You could probably talk <laughs> me into that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So it seems to me, and just in listening to you guys talk about your hikes, is the quiet and the simplicity are what you find so restorative and what sounds so great. Is that right? Oh, I mean, where, where yeah. else can you get yeah. that in modern no life? No doubt about it. Yeah. When we were talking about Beyond Leave No Trace and reducing consumption and how much do you really need, and if you can't put your car in your garage, maybe you have a bit of a problem. When you go backpacking, you realize that you only need, you're not out there forever, but you're out there for often a very long period of time. You need about 20, 22, 25 pounds of stuff before your food and water. And that's it. That's a pretty refreshing way to do something. And as I've talked about, I think the last time around, it rewires your brain. It really does. I believe it. Yeah. That rewiring. I'm with you. It's just, it's that is uh, to get out to a place that's pristine and w- wild. And, and to think it's kind of reserved just for you who just got there. It's your space right now. And, but you don't get to keep it. You just, you move along. But you get to a point where you feel like this is all I need. I have everything I need right here. And it's a nice experience because you get back to your house and you're like, oh my God, look at all the things I have to do. <laughs> and that's, that can really, be so daunting. It really puts it in perspective, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> so as we were researching this podcast, I came across this quote and I thought I would close with this. It's from Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring. She wrote, those who dwell among the beauties and mysteries of the earth are never alone or weary of life. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's lovely. Exactly. I need to put that on my wall. Yeah, one more thing to stuff into my house. (laughs) Stuffology, right? (laughs) Well, listen, thanks for joining us, Kathy. It's been great talking to you, and I hope you'll come back. Well, thank you. This has been great. I would love to come back. Another podcast adventure. Thanks, Kathy. It was so interesting and informative. Really appreciate it. Yes. Thanks, Kelly. And thanks, Mike. Let's keep this conversation going. Send an email to inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com or leave us a voicemail at our website, ethicsandetiquette.com. Check out our Instagram for pictures and links from this episode at Ethics Etiquette and our Facebook page, ethics and etiquette if you want to support what we're doing subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and remember to leave us a gushing over-the-top review while you're there and keep recommending ethics and etiquette to your friends and family for kelly halligan zimmerman mike derrick and kathy derrick i'm marna ashburn and this is ethics and etiquette a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas thanks for being with us this week and join us again new episodes are posted on the first and third wednesdays of every month see you then